Well, I think t- from a performance point of view, I think, well, Jace Delaney and Grant Duffy have done some good research around acceleration metrics and acceleration density. So that for me, like it's basically just average acceleration per second. I think for me is probably one of the ones that gets missed a little bit and not used so much. And I think that's probably a, a really important one. If you need us, I guess meters per minute, I think is a, is, is one to look at. It's typically, um, I think a good variable because players and coaches understand what meters are and you, they can have some ownership and some conversation around the conversation when they're, and they can feel involved in it a bit more if they have an understanding of, of what the metric is. Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm the host and today my guest is Billy Hewitt. He is the head of sports science at the Collingwood Football Club. And our key topic of today's discussion will be about how to successfully link sports science research to practice, more specifically in elite sports. So if you're a high performance manager, sports scientist, strength conditioning coach, or you're just interested in how elite sport works and functions, make sure to stick around. And if you've got any questions, you can feel free to hit the comment section below and we'll try to get to your question at the end of the show. Before we start this episode, our mission here at Prepare Like a Pro is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. So if you like the show, please show your support by following us on Instagram and subscribing to the podcast or on iTunes, Spotify and YouTube. Welcome, Billy. Thanks for jumping on, mate. And where's Jack? Thanks for having me. Looking forward to diving into our topic today. I've, I've had a few sports scientists on recently, and it's definitely a popular topic looking at the, well, yeah, no pun intended, looking at the data, the numbers, the listeners, it, it's definitely ranks highly. So no doubt this episode will, will do the same. But before we get into the, the meat of it all, do you mind just providing a, a quick background on on everything you've done today in terms of yeah, yep. academic side of things, but also your experience in elite sport? Yep. Yeah, obviously, as you mentioned, I'm at the Pies, but I've been here three months now, so I'm, I'm new to to AFL. I spent the previous nine years in rugby league, so this has been a good good change of scenery for me, a new, a new challenge in a, in a new sport. So I had two years, the last two years prior to this, I've been at the South Sydney Rabbitohs in a sports science and a little bit of S&C role as well there. And then prior to that, I had seven years at the Dragons, I guess my time in the Dragons, I initially started there and in, it was a master's scholarship in connection with the University of Wollongong and that project was in and around training load monitoring in relation to injury risk. So I had, I guess, one my first year, that was probably one of the toughest years I've had in elite sport where I was doing the, the master's full-time and, and I suppose working full-time embedded within the club, which was a great grounding for me. And then I moved into, I guess, strictly just a, a sports science role full-time, but I also, I had a bit of a passion for the research side of things so i continued doing a phd but not the typical i guess embedded phd scholarship of the club i was full-time with a client and did that phd on the side i guess in my spare time which was which was another good challenge but i like i learned some great lessons along the way there and then i guess over the next couple of years there i, I moved a little bit into some coaching roles as well so more so i guess in your typical sports science role you, you're collecting a lot of information and then relaying it to people on how you can 
I guess, inform or drive your, your program. I was, I was still doing that, but also doing some hands-on work in terms of coaching some, some players on the field and also interacting with coaches around planning training as well. And then, and then prior to the, the Dragons, where I guess where I originally started was I had a, a research scholarship with, with Cricket Australia, which was a similar question to the one I, the one I had at the Dragons. I, I guess I started, um, at cr- in cricket, my time in cricket at a really interesting time where 2020 had just been introduced to the schedule. So there's this real change in the, the schedule and the dynamic that, uh, and the workloads that, that players were subjected to. And, and around about the time, it was about 11 years ago, 12 years ago maybe, a lot of fast bowlers started to, to break down. So there's this sort of mini injury crisis within the fast bowling group. So I had a research scholarship there looking at some some training load data with around fast bowlers and, and injury risk, which is where I probably that particular project's probably where I, I guess, developed a real passion for applied sports science and and um, research. So I guess that that whole research process of being able to form a question and and develop some insights that might be able to help coaches and and players and practice. So I suppose just as a bit of a snapshot, I guess that's where my my journey started and and ended up with me here at the Pies now. Yeah, fantastic, mate. And and Jeez. what about a strong influences or mentors if you like for those different environments that you're in are there any that yeah. sort of help shape your philosophy to that yeah yeah definitely there's been heaps in the beginning probably the, the biggest influences and, and mentors i had were tim gabbard and and peter blanche so the cricket project that i mentioned at the start peter blanche was working at at cricket australia at the time and he obviously went on to roles at essendon and the Brisbane lions as well but he reached out to, te- to have a little bit of help with with some some of the things that i mentioned before and, and then tim also got me on board and those two were big mentors for me really i guess the the knowledge and not only the knowledge but the way they went about things as people really i guess I, t- I took a lot of learnings from them and i wouldn't be where i am without those guys today and i guess for peter in particular i mean the time that i spent with peter is probably a drop in the ocean compared to his whole career but he had a really big influence on me in a, in a short period of time and then other, some other people rich johnson's another one who was one of the influences sorry one of the supervisors on my phd and and he had a big influence on me right from second year of undergrad even even up until today as well but there's probably there's always i think a lot of people along the way that have had positive and negative i guess influences or learnings that they've provided me i think it's really important to to learn off off both of those and it's it's really great to sort of take little bits and pieces off all the people that you you work with along the way and and figure out what sort of works best for you decade in elite sport i imagine there'd be some some pretty key highlights are there ones that spring front of mind you're proud to experience yeah, I think completing the, the postgrad degrees while I was working in, in sport are big highlights. But I think I think everyone's got sort of those stories of where that they, they, they made sacrifices or worked hard and got rewards at the end, and that's definitely one of them. I think that right back to the beginning, it's one I mentioned a couple times already. But the the first experience I had in sport in, in cricket was probably one of the most rewarding ones I've had as well. Not just because it was new or the or the first experience that I had, but I sort of entered that environment where they had a really challenging period where there was a big change in the dynamic and had a big I guess problem in uh, not a big problem but a, a problem that they wanted to answer in terms of injury rates with fastballs and I felt like I was able to contribute to helping provide some insights around that problem and that for me was was really re- rewarding and I was able to see them take that information and be able to use it in practice so I think for me that's probably one of the one of the biggest if not the main highlights when I look back on my career so far It'd be nice to be able to say that I had a premiership that was that I'd worked at a club when we were on the premiership, and that was a big highlight. But maybe maybe one day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And going back to that experience with Cricket Australia, 
were you working alongside a few other sports scientists? Was it more performance analysts, coaches? Like what did sort of the team look like back then? Yeah, sports science, I guess, in my time in cricket's definitely around more the biomechanics and performance analysis area. A bit different different to maybe in, in team sports is a little bit more physiology based in, in some respects, I suppose. So there was Rian Crowther in, in in that area that, that did a great job. I believe he's still there. And then Peter Blanche was head of sports science and sports medicine. But I think back in that day, in, in those days, full-time sports scientists weren't really a massive part of a lot of programs in, in team sports. I think it was really in those early days where they were maybe part-time or hired on a consultancy basis as needed. And that space was was really developing. But definitely back then, they had a good team of physiotherapists and SC coaches that I worked in and around with. <laughs> yeah. And, and what point of your career did that start to shift where full-time roles started to pop up in the different codes? Yeah, good question. I think well, I, I first started at Dragons at the end of 2013, and that was sort of like I mentioned, an, I guess an embedded space program with the Uni of Wollongong and, and the, the Dragons. So maybe I reckon a, a year or two after that, there started to become some, some full-time roles. I mean, there's probably – I don't really think there are any part-time roles when you – it's hard to have a part-time role in a program. You might be employed in a part-time basis, but it does consume a lot more time, I think, than you typically think it's going to. But yeah, I think around 2015, 2016, and thereabouts, is that sort of the full-time sports science role started to become a bit more prevalent. Flip side, mate, challenges. Obviously, lead sport brings pressure and high expectations. Would it be some significant challenges you've faced over your career and what have you sort of learned from it or yep. grown from it as, as a practitioner? A good question. I think sports science for me is about um, being able to provide information so that people can make informed decisions or, or provide evidence so that people can make informed decisions. Otherwise, programs are solely just based on opinion or previous experience. And that's not to say that opinion and previous experience aren't important, but sports science, I guess, is able to complement that with a little bit of evidence. I suppose the challenge with that is is you have to be able to challenge other people's opinions and maybe challenge their beliefs a little bit, which I don't. I think for me, starting out early was one of the bigger challenges that I didn't really. It's not really part of your undergrad degree. You don't really learn how to talk to head coaches about maybe what you think's wrong with their program or things that could be done better. So I think that for me is is always a constant evolving challenge. Like being able to learn how different people want to receive feedback. Some people it's it's really easy to work with and they like to be challenged or like to be given information or feedback that they think could help develop and grow the program and then other people might not necessarily like to hear that or they might have a certain way that they want to hear feedback. So I think for me, that's one of the, the bigger challenges, which has been a fun experience to learn and, and and grow in that space along the way. And then I guess another one's keeping up to date with all of the, the latest research as well. Like there's such an overwhelming amount of like massive research that's done within performance sport in a, in a whole variety of different sports. So I think for me, it can be difficult to be able to keep up with that while you're also doing your day-to-day job within a club, particularly this time of year when we're in pre-season, which is usually the, the busiest part of year, and you might be doing some long hours, and you know it's it can be very difficult to, to sort of keep up with that in that space. So I think it, one of the things I think helps in that regard is um, working in performance sport. We generally like to be generalists rather than specialists, so to be able to have I guess a network of people that might specialise in in certain areas that you can draw on and be able to keep you up to date with the latest knowledge and just be open-minded about trying to draw the opinions and experience and knowledge of others to help challenge you as well. Yeah, in terms of challenges, I think, yeah, those are the main ones. Yeah, yeah, thanks, mate, and, and thanks for the honesty as well in terms of insight of, yeah. of the challenges, the, the interpersonal skills I think is an interesting one. Yeah. Probably wrap, 
resonates with anyone that works in elite sport. Do you think that's something that can be embedded in undergraduate degrees or masters programs, like, or is it yeah. a matter of something you sort of you sort of have to be in that environment to experience it? Like, is it can you create it and, and develop it before yeah. that stage, or do you think it's a matter of experience? Yeah, oh, I think experience is definitely the best way to to learn it. But I definitely think it's be embedded in undergraduate programs. I think in my early days with. Particularly, that's why I found Tim Gabbett such a good mentor for me was he really took a lot of time to, to get me experience talking and dealing with coaches. You know, so he used to have he used to have practical days where lots of different coaches from different sports would come in and, and we'd have to talk to them and explain different projects and research that we were working on. And then they would in turn sort of challenge us, like, how is that useful? How is that going to help me? And those, I think, are things that I get. I think some good mentors will be able to provide for their students, but I, I think they're things that can be, I think, developed and embedded in undergraduate programs a bit more. But but also, um, yeah, you, you definitely need to be able to get out there and get some practical experience and, and be able to live and breathe it to, to develop really well in that space. No, well said, mate. And moving over to the key topic in terms of how to successfully link Sports own research to to practice. You sort of touched yeah. on it before in terms of that objectivity and and not just going off past experience, but having yeah. an objective lens. Yeah. What else is it? Is this is the purpose of a sports scientist? Do you think in a team sport like AFL? Yeah, one of the first considerations when you're whether you want to apply apply new research or new processes within your program. I, I think it's always good to take a trip around the the research process. I think if you remember back to it might be you might anyone might have come across it in high school science or if you in your undergraduate degree yet, but you can if you just look up this the scientific method you'll see there's a sort of this process where we start with a research question we might look into what research or or, or what we know about the topic area develop a hypothesis test with an experiment analyze some data and then i guess report those findings and then challenge ourselves with another question again so i think it's important that you have a really solid purpose around what you want to do or, or what sort of research questions or question you want to answer. So I suppose an example might be, you know, we might want to, one might develop, oh, we might want to implement some some sleep monitoring, which is a really broad question, but we might want to dig a bit deeper, like what, what do we want to know? Do we want to know how our athletes wake up and how they feel in the morning? Potentially just ask them, or do we want to know how many hours they, they slept at night? Do we want to know what time they went to bed, what time they got up, or do we want to know even some more in-depth stuff like deep sleep, REM sleep, heart rate variability, when at rest, and then also what sort of insights are we going to be able to take and how are we going to use that? What do we know already? How accurately and reliably can we measure all those sorts of things? So I think it, it sort of, you sort of have to start there. I think one of the one of the pitfalls or one of the hiccups in, in practice is we come in a little bit later around the, the research process or the cycle where we have all this data and then we go back and we go, what sort of question can we answer? with all of this data and we, we probably don't develop the best the best findings or the most the most robust studies which i think is okay as long as we acknowledge and and deal with the uncertainty that, that that brings as well i guess the other one to consider is the value and the the burden that we might get so in the you know we might get a really like high amount of value out of whether we want to take some blood or we want to take uh, we might take some muscle biopsies which would be we get some really valuable information out of that, but the burden of, of doing all that would be highly time-consuming, high amount of process involved to get and develop that develop that data and that information, and then we might not even be able to act on it. So I think just some really being able to nail down what your purpose is, how valuable you think certain information are gonna, is going to be, how easy it is to collect it, and, and also be able to act on it. Because at the end of the day, if you can't act on the information, then it's not really worth having as well. 
And, and when you're, I guess now's a good example because you're at a new club, like when you're in that stage of learning how things have been done in the past yeah. and, and then in the phase of potentially bringing in some new things, what's your process in terms of leaning off staff members? Is it a yeah. high volume scenario where you're trying to get perspective from each different department or is it more just less is more type approach and, have, and building those relationships with a few key staff, key stakeholders in, in your department sort of take us through that process? Uh-huh. Well, I think it's good to get a broad perspective of what everyone's like coaching um either management and, and also the snc physiotherapy that i think it's good to get a broad spectrum of everyone's thoughts and opinions but i think definitely any change that i would would want to make or any new things that i'd want to implement i think need to be gradual over time so usually you come in and you might have like my role at the club's in a new role so there's a couple of new things to implement but i think for me the first thing is to now now those first and also at the same time um listening to other people that you work with, S&Cs, physios, like I mentioned, and sort of having an ear or ear out for what sort of problems they might have in their area and then potentially how you think sports science might be able to help better inform those problems and, and be able to solve and create them as you go. But I definitely think it's a it's definitely has to be a step-by-step approach. It can be really, I guess, easy to get stuck in the in the process of trying to, we've got 10 different things that we want to try and implement at one point. It's kind of like if you I suppose if you want to learn to juggle, you're going to start with two, two, juggle two balls and then implement three and then implement four. It definitely wants to sort of go along that process. But I definitely, I'm a big believer in, you know, I guess optimal performance, for lack of a better word, is definitely the product of everyone in, in the whole department, sports science, physiotherapy, S&C, like definitely coaches and, and players more than anyone. So I'm a big believer in sort of taking on the opinions and the thoughts and advice of everyone that's involved and, and try to collaborate with those people as well. And you mentioned, you know, being clear on your purpose yeah. and knowing knowing your values. How, how much is, has sort of your values as a sports scientist changed over the last sort of 10 years? And does it change a great deal from sport to sport now that you've, you've transitioned from, I guess, you know, being Cricket Australia, but then with specifically fast bowlers and then rugby league athletes yeah. and now AFL, how much do the values change or, or how consistent are they? No, I think, I suppose my ultimate purpose and the main role i have is around monitoring and and using that to implement i guess changes in in the training program and my my purpose around that is i think the number one purpose is to develop resilient athletes so that for me probably i've probably gotten it hasn't changed over time but i've probably become a lot stronger in that purpose over over the years i think when i first started in in that particular space the purpose in general and in the industry was around i mean back in those days we were sort of still going through a learning process we were we're starting to you know, GPS was becoming embedded. We were being able to collect a lot of data, but we didn't necessarily know what all of it meant and how we could use it. And we've sort of been going on a journey of learning about that. And I think the purpose back in those days was a little bit more around trying to prevent injuries and probably predict, for lack of a better word, but try and, I guess, look for red flags and and try and stop bad things from happening, Whereas, um, which I, I sort of refer to as more of a reactive sort of mindset. My purpose has definitely shifted a lot more to the to the proactive mindset where i think if we can develop resilient athletes through good solid training programs then we can definitely prevent a lot of bad things in the injury sense from happening so i would say that's changed too much over the years but definitely that purpose of developing resilient athletes is something i've taken from from sport to sport and i guess the more i learn about particular areas i guess the more you realize you don't know but also the, the more i learn about particular areas the more stronger i've sort of become in that mindset around around developing resilience yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating topic. Did that? Did the penny drop one particular day in a particular sport where you thought, "Yeah, I'm, I'm a big, 
believer in built in developer resilience resilient athletes is a, is a key focus a big pillar of, of what of how you go about your craft or is it something that as you mentioned it's sort of always been a strong belief whether it came from maybe some mentors and then you've you've seen how effective it can be when it's done well and then it's just got ingrained yeah. and built on no nah, it's definitely something that was i guess first passed on to me from tim and and peter that i mentioned at the start that was always yep. always their belief and philosophy which i think naturally you you sort of gravitate to that when when your mentors jerk you in that way but i've also i've just seen plenty of evidence along the way that that supports that i suppose one of the uh, the work i've mentioned in cricket a few times was one of the examples i had of that but then i had another one of the other earlier projects that i was involved in rich johnson was the lead author on it but it was one of his phd projects and he looked at he looked at post-match fatigue responses in rugby league players and he sort of looked at that relative to physical qualities one of his findings was that fitter players that performs better on excuse me on a yo-yo ir1 test those players had as you as you'd imagine they had higher workloads during matches external and internal so players with better physical qualities run more in matches than players with i guess less developed yo-yo ir1 ability but I guess one of the key findings he had was that those particular players with better developed physical qualities, even though they had higher workloads, they had quicker recovery for post-match fatigue in the in the after two days post-match. So I think for me, in, in that sense, like a lot of the times when we're looking at, at workload data, we might sort of try and pick out players that we think have higher workloads and then try and, I guess, look to react to that. And, and be and maybe those are the players that we need to whether it's treat more or have interventions with more or maybe reduce training and we think that those players are going to be the ones that are going to require that a bit more but typically those players are the ones that potentially recover a bit faster even though that, despite the fact that they've had a higher workload so i think for me that in terms of your question around when the penny dropped that was probably when he when he brought out when he produced those findings that was probably where i became really I guess solidified in my stance that that was sort of what I believed in. Yeah, and how did he uh, measure recovery from the game? I haven't seen that paper. Yeah, yeah. I guess the one of the strongest findings was he, he looked at counter movement jump peak power. So yep. pre-game, pre-game, post-game, twenty-four hours post-game, forty-eight hours post-game, and he also took some blood measures and looked at creatine kinase concentration at those time points as well. Yeah, plus some some yeah plus some subjective subjective measures as well. So questionnaires. Solomon's question is an RPE, I believe. Yeah. 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 So the key takeaways from that is obviously developing their aerobic base and, and ability to, um, yeah, to condition the athletes, but then also not being reactive to just because they had a high output necessarily means they have to do less the following week. They, they, they're the ones that probably can continue yeah. working and, and yeah. so on. Yeah. Progress. Yeah. Absolutely. Not fit that you need to look, you potentially need to look after and develop them. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. De- yeah. Definitely. Yeah. You summed up well there. And, I think there's always outliers to that. It's not always necessarily a blanket case, but but yeah, that's definitely I think solidifies that concept. Sports scientist or any staff member listening in, that's absolute gold. And and Gem, no one, and I, I imagine people are probably searching for that paper now. But are there any other papers, or, or feel free to talk about your own work as well, where you've you've found that that it's been quite practical in in the approach and and could be quite effective for for practitioners listening in to apply to their trade. Yeah, I guess one similar one in that grain that we had we came out about 2020 but we we looked at we did some sub-axial testing over a couple of years when i was at the dragons and and nathan pickworth who was the performance manager there he's now at the sharks was was involved in that as well so we did a sub-maximal yo-yo which is basically just the first four minutes of the yo-yo quite a number of times over two years and and we basically found to their own individual i guess where we'd normally see them sort of sit when players add higher 
training loads over a month, they typically tend to perform better at that submaximal performance test. So I think for me, that just sort of, I guess, acknowledges the, the important findings that, you know, when you've had a good base of training over a, a, a monthly period, and we usually, we used to try and do that test after a period of rest, whether it was a couple of days off or, or whatever. So, you know, you try and limit the influence of acute fatigue or anything like that, but that sort of solidifies the findings to me that, you know, if you, if you, if you can, if you can, t- if you're having a good chronic period of, of training, you're typically well prepared to perform, but that, I guess that, and I'm not saying everyone should go out and do a submaximal test regularly because it can, I guess, present some other challenges in your program where you're adding adding time and extra workload and things like that. And that might be time that coaches want to spend on, on doing things. But there's also some other work in that space as well where people have looked at small-sided gains and, and things like that to try and measure people's internal response relative to a particular workload. So, And I find things like that have been pretty pretty valuable if you can get them within a program. Yeah, okay. So the small side of game has to, I imagine, be quite reliable in terms of dimensions and the amount of plays in it. Yeah. Feed it yeah. 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 And usually when you when you start implementing things like that, 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 it becomes a bit noisier. Like there's a little bit more error in terms of the variability from game to game. And yet, like you say, pitch size, area per player has to be the same. It has to be the same rules, same same game. But, you know, but usually you're lucky. Pardon? It'd be better for the athletes, I imagine. Yeah. They're doing yeah, max test. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they get a bit more fun out of it, and there, there probably is a bit of a. I, I don't have any data or, or findings to support this, but I think there probably is a bit of a mental drain, maybe, to doing yeah. like the same submaximal shuttle based tests a lot. And there is something to be said about having a bit of fun within the program as well. Yeah. yeah. So, do you, for you now that you've seen both that have been quite effective, do you sort of just is it case by case in terms of the environment that you're in and, and the staff that you, you know that you're working with and you think, okay, yeah. I think this one could be quite effective. How do you go about sort of an opinion on either one? Yeah, or is yeah. One I definitely think, no, I definitely think it's a, it's a, like I, like I mentioned earlier, you know, working and collaborating with other staff, I think in different areas is very important. So I definitely think it's a case by case basis in terms of what works in, in that particular environment. You know, sometimes coaches might have particular games that they like to have in there regularly. So you can sort of just, you might be able to slip in some monitoring in that sense without even having to change the program at all. Sometimes you might, if it's going to be something that's really going to be valued and acted on a lot and used to make important decisions, you probably might need something that's a little bit more accurate and reliable and standardized, like a running test. So I definitely think it's a a case-by-case basis. And whichever way you go, I think is fine, as long as you acknowledge the error that can be involved in doing it. So if you're something like small side games, you've got to acknowledge some of the challenges and the differences that you can have between those games and you don't. You might not be able to act on it as reliably as something that's standardised. The small-sided games, and I guess another question for that is like, are the athletes aware that that is that small-sided game is also a monitoring tool, or are they not? Or is it, you trying to keep it that they're not aware? Well, for me, I, I think the measures the measures that I've used in that, particularly around the the submaximal run test, that that data was player load. So it's basically the accelerometers that they have in in the GPS devices, and that'll just measure rate of change in acceleration in, in three different planes. So it's a little bit of um it's a little bit more difficult, I think, for players to understand than either meters that they cover or high speed running meters or whatever it might be, but it does it does capture a lot of different demands that are placed to them. So you can kind of get a little bit more of an overall picture of external workload. So for me in those types of games, that'd probably be the first measure that I look at. But I suppose it's a it's a good question and if you are going to implement something like that, any type of submaximal test, it's probably worth assessing individual changes or the responses to that test relative to a few different variables and maybe finding out which one has the strongest relationship with some changes 
Um, so for me, in the examples I've used, it's been player load, but it might be in different sports or with different tests, it might be something different. But it's probably, like I mentioned before, about taking a trip around the research process. It's probably worth validating and, and looking at the reliability of your own sort of tools while you're using them. In terms of I think the other part of your question around players knowing, I guess certainly when they're doing a sub-maximal run and test, they know that what that they're being assessed in some regard. But for me, most of the time with some with games, it's probably not so much letting them know beforehand. It's it's probably more just um, if you do need to use it as a conversation starter, maybe letting them know after the fact, hey, we've been doing these types of games or type of training and we notice this response and then using it to try and couple it with some other information that you that you might have or, you know, to just to generate a conversation with, with those players. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. And it, what's your sort of go-tos with the sports side of games? Is it player load again or heart rate or, yeah, distance per minute? What are your sort of favourites? Well, I think t- from a performance point of view, I think, well, Jace Delaney and Grant Duffy have done some good research around acceleration metrics and acceleration density. So that, for me... Like it's basically just average acceleration per second. I think for me, it's probably one of the ones that gets missed a little bit and not used so much. And I think that's probably a, a really important one. Mm-hmm. Meters, I, I guess meters per minute, I think is a is is one to look at. It's typically, uh, I think, a good variable because players and coaches understand what meters are, and you, they can have some ownership and some conversation around the conversation when they're and they can feel involved in it a bit more if they have an understanding of, of what the metric is. Um, but definitely trying to couple that with maybe some variables that are a little bit more sports specific. But yeah, in terms of the standard, the, the internal response, I think for those particular types of tests, heart rate's the way to go. But heart rate can have some challenges for, I guess, for me and in, in my experience for looking at total response to a training session, it, particularly in contact sports, they can get broken or ripped off or moved into poor positions where you're getting poor quality data. So I uh, I'm a big on value like questionnaires, particularly rating and perceived exertion questionnaires post training, which I think typically when players and athletes start using them, I think there's a little bit of a journey they go on where they start to sort of compare previous sessions that they've rated before and develop a bit of an understanding around that info. But I think you can really develop some, um, if you can standardize things relative to each player, you can develop some good insights around what sort of responses you'd expect to see from a typical training session, you know. That, that what sort of response you need today compared to what sort of response you expect to see from previous sessions. I think that's definitely one way to go if you can't implement any particular standardized games or standardized tests. That's certainly something that I've, I've valued in the past. When providing information now that we're at the pointy end of pre-season, but what are some of your sort of key metrics, whether it be in rugby or in AFL, for developing resilient athletes as their sort of non-negotiable yeah. target to yeah. have for individual athletes and talk us through it, the data you sort of yeah. reference, whether it be their games, like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good question. I think the two things are the two things. Obviously, volume and intensity. I think volume is usually the thing that's done a bit easier and and really well. Like we can go out there and you know we want to do a 12, 13, 14 k session, and we can you know we're wearing GPS units, so we can definitely we know when that's going to happen. Probably the little bit more challenging thing around that regard is getting it in a certain amount of time or with a particular intensity, and that can definitely be di- it's difficult to replicate training intensity maybe when you've got your i guess first team versus second team comparing to the intensity that you might get when you've got you know you're playing in a prelim final or a semi-final like that intensity is obviously going to be a bit higher and that can be harder to replicate but i think definitely a, a good ballpark i know i referenced jace delaney and grant duffy before but they've done a lot of work around the peak periods and intensities in matches whether it be one to ten minute 
peak period. So I think, you know, if, if you're having a four or five minute conditioning drill or, or conditioning small side game, whatever it might be, you want to be making sure that it's hitting the intensity that, that would be a, a fast intensity that we'd see in a peak four or five minute of a game. I think things like that are definitely good reference points. And in terms of the variable, I think it's always important, going back to from a volume point of view, I think it's always good to have three three to five key variables and then maybe some supplementary variables after that so i think distance is an important one it's not the best like i mentioned before it's not the best workload measure but i think in terms of creating player engagement coach engagement it's easy when and that when those stakeholders have an understanding of what that is so i think that's one that's that i that i use i think that acceleration density or acceleration load is is an important one so we know we can cover five k's sort of running around the oval but a lot of the demands of the game are, can be shuttle or change of direction based and then a high speed running measure as well which i don't think high speed running typically not really related with training load per se is not necessarily a load measure but it's definitely a performance metric i think that's important for for afl players in particular to, to be prepared for so those are probably the three starting points that i'd have and then you obviously want to have some some things that will supplement that like top speed and relative max velocity yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks for yeah, providing such great detail in that. And yeah. in terms of a sports scientist, maybe someone who's going into either a, a semi-professional club for the first time as a sports scientist or someone's going into a, an elite sport for the first time, where do you think you can make your biggest impact if, you, if you're thinking you're going to be at that club for a few years? And as you mentioned, yeah. it can be gradual and that's probably the way to go in terms of building your yeah. relationships, but also yeah. putting you not changing too much too quickly. But where do you think you can make your biggest impact as a sports scientist? Yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah, I guess the common answer is, you know, we want, the goal is to achieve optimal performance, but then that brings another question about, so how do you go about doing that or what is optimal? But I think as a starting point, the, the things I just mentioned around training standards. So I think if you can if you can set some objective criteria, even before you start, say, the first training session of the preseason, but be able to set out some some goals and some standards around what you think training should look like before you've even started and i mentioned some there around peak periods of the games and what training intensity should be like we want to prepare players for the volume that they're going to have on game day and the weeks that they're going to have in season but i think um i suppose when I, going back to when i started at at south sydney one of the one of the best things that i had to do which i hadn't had to do before was get up in front of the coaches and the other staff and basically presents on you know what i thought training should look like some of the things i valued and believed in around what training should look like how i was going to monitor them how we were going to act on them how i thought we could collaborate around certain things and i think it really helps when you when you start somewhere from the beginning to be able to do that at the start not saying you can't change things or develop things along the way but it makes those conversations easier when maybe two three four months in if you want to bring something up that you think needs to be improved you can sort of reference hey i brought up earlier on that this is something that i believe in this is how it's going maybe this is something we could tweak or change and it probably becomes a little bit easier to start that conversation or on the other ground coaches might come up into you and sort of how's that how are those things going that you mentioned that we needed to be monitoring and acting on so that's probably one thing from this where i think anyone coming into a new environment could probably try and make a difference i think another thing that probably uh, maybe gets forgotten about a little bit is I, I think people in the sports science role can probably provide a little bit of belief for players and coaches around the program as well and you know beliefs are really powerful thing that i think you know there's a lot of there's a bit of work around placebo effects and things like that people just having belief in a, in a particular thing that they're going in the right direction but being able to show players and and coaches that their programs going to prepare them for the hardest parts of the game or the hardest parts of you know an in-season competition period or whatever it might be i think help 
helps them know that they're better prepared to attack what's ahead of them. Visual sort of tool, a graph or something like that for the athletes to look at or? Yeah, I think it could be done in that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, this is this is what this is what some of the hardest parts of the game are. This is where you're training or whatever it might be. I think obviously there's period there's periods or times where you have to highlight things that maybe you think need to be improved, but maybe not trying to it, it can it can can become sort of I guess negative spin you know, and the athletes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah typically that's what's on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes when you're in, in that sports science role, when you start off, it might be easier to just sort of sit back and watch and then you just see negative things that pop up that might you think might want to be changed and you only bring those things up and it becomes a bit of a like, oh, who's this guy that just keeps telling us we need to change things? I think being able to just sort of, even though you might not need to do it, but just say, hey, I think these we're going really well in this area or hey, you're doing really good at this, I think really just creates a bit of energy and belief and positive feedback for everyone as well. Yeah, absolutely. And something you picked up on what you mentioned before in terms of that collaborative approach and how you can help other stakeholders from medical team, coaching team, athletes and, and the high performance team. So briefly, what would be some things that you would do for, for those different areas, whether it be coaches with plan, you know, planning, training, you know, athletes, the medical team, and of course, the, we've probably talked about the performance team a fair bit already, but yeah, those other key stakeholders, what would be some things that you'd be providing them? Yeah, talk us through that for those that aren't aware. Yeah. I think similar to what we mentioned before, you, you have to go through a process of, of finding out what what coaches want want training to look like. So I guess without going into too much, but coaches might have particular themes for a certain day where they want training to look, the, the movements or the demands of training to look in a certain way. And you might be able to, loose, whether loosely or strongly, measure that in a certain way, but being able to provide them with that with that feedback. You know, I know you mentioned, the uh, coach mentioned, oh, this, this was a particular the intensity of this session was really good on this particular day. So you might be able to say, well, you know, it was, this was what I noticed that that measured that. And then you can sort of keep tabs on that in previous days. If it does tend to, if things tend to drop off or change, you've already sort of created that that starting point and, and reference point to to go back to. I think in terms of players, it's, it's kind of, again, learning about what each individual player values and doesn't value. Some players probably don't, don't care about GPS or, or they don't really want to know too much about it they just want to carry on with whatever it is they need to do to train which is fine so you don't want to over bombard those players with too much info and then other players just need other players just want to know sort of every little detail about everything so it's been able to quickly give them a good snapshot about you know how they're going or where they're at but yeah definitely similar to a process of you know finding out what different people value or want to see out of certain things and what sort of feedback they want and being able to get that to them quickly and efficiently where possible and then the medical side of things I think um, probably I mentioned earlier about just keeping an ear out for problems I think that people might have or little, you know, it's always good to get a a bit of a two-way feedback from the medical department, but that's sort of physios of really collaboratively around, you know, you're giving them information about particular changes that you might see in players' programs, but they're also feeding that back with how players are responding or, or handling training as well. And that really helps, I think, develop a collaborative approach. Yeah, yeah. And... From the uh, from your sort of principles point of view, and then being malleable with your with your rules, and do it. Give us a elaborate on that on that topic for, from a sports scientist point of view. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of a lot of research projects in sport have been observational in design. So I guess tip in the opposite to like a medical setting where we might you know medical 
science might do a particular study where we look at the effect of x dose of a drug on you know patient outcomes and we have like we have some definitive answers like take 10 milligrams of this drug and you'll have this response in sports science we don't really have you know they're pretty loose a lot of our findings can be pretty loose we might read one study that tells us we can go in one direction and another one might contradict that so i think you've got to be certainly you know there's no clear and I've made the mistake before in some research papers where I've spoken about thresholds that we can create to, you know, make cutoff points for where we should put training. You know, when training reaches X point, it could become an injury risk. But really that that point could vary somewhere from here to, you know, right up and down here. So I think you have to be a little bit sort of, like I'm saying, developing resilient athletes and training above the intensity of matches and preparing players for weeks that they might see in season are important. But what those actually are and what those points are, there's no clear definitive point that we need to get them to so there's not we might say we want them to get them to 120 percent of what their biggest end season week is but you know if they only get to 115 percent, i don't think that means we've fouled it's just yep. we're in the we're in the ballpark gotcha makes sense yep. yeah yeah that no, does and before we start to wrap it up mate is there anything that we haven't touched on that you think is important for either practitioners or, or even from an athlete's perspective when it comes to applying sports science elite sport no i don't think so i covered a bit there i just can't really think of anything that i've thought should be covered that we haven't haven't really covered i think i guess just for anyone in the sports science area i guess the, the key point that we sort of mentioned there which touched on it quite a bit is just being collaborative and and multidisciplinary in the whole department and, and it's sort of the main the main role i see it from a sports scientist is you're there to support players and and coaches but also the other the other physiotherapy and, and snc staff as well so certainly i think collaborating with them and and creating good relationships with all of those people players and coaches included is is probably one of the most important things yeah 100 percent. it's and a yeah. great takeaway and, and key message definitely something i noted down and, and no doubt listeners did too yeah. for the last couple of questions mate for anyone that wants has got some follow-up questions for you where's the best place to get in contact yeah probably link linkedin's probably the, the best one yeah, if you jump on there i've got a twitter account as well i maybe don't monitor that one as as much as i should be yeah if you jump on linkedin yeah, and add a yeah, yeah, sure. And what about in your work life, mate? Are any pet peeves? Anything that fires you up? Yeah, probably got a few. We're probably run out of time. Nah, no, nah, I don't really. I think for me in, in my space, people that use data for the purpose of just confirming their own opinions and then yeah. essentially just disregard it if it totally contradicts their own opinion. So I think in in, in my particular space, you have to be very open minded, and and I've sort of mentioned that quite a bit. But you have to be open minded and ready to be challenged and and not just sort of trying to use data or information to confirm your own beliefs. So that's that's probably one of one of my pet peeves that bothers me. A challenging situation to be in when you find that um, yep. data reveals something different to what you thought originally would. What about your favourite way to spend a day off, mate? The best day I've had off in a long time was about a week ago, and I took my daughter to swimming lessons. And met my three-year-old daughter Sophia. I took her to some swimming lessons, and we went to a park for about an hour and a half. She played around there. We went out to lunch. I got a good coffee. She got a good ice cream. Went and had a nap, and then I took her to this place called Rainbow Town that had like ball pits and slides and dodging cars and trampol- trampolines. And yeah, I probably had more fun than she did. But yeah, any anything where anything where I'm spending time with with my family um, is probably how I like to spend a oh, day off. Awesome, man. And what about? Uh, it's obviously a big year ahead, but and we're early recording this in February of 2023. But what's on the horizon for you? Not just professionally, it can be personally as well, mate. That you're excited about yeah. for 2023. Yeah, yeah. Professionally, well, I'm, like I said, I'm in a new sport, so I'm really looking forward to some games starting. I think in any any year around February, everyone gets a bit 
drained at the end of preseason. It's pretty keen for some games, but particularly for me this year, like being in a new sport, getting to go to the MCG a fair bit, packed MCG. I'm I'm really looking forward to that and looking forward to singing the team song a lot. And then fingers crossed, and then hopefully, um, well then, and personally, yeah, looking forward to baby number two showing up in April. Yeah, massive. Congratulations yeah. again. And Thanks, so mate. Appreciate it. A huge year. And yeah, thank you so yeah. much for, for jumping on the show and sharing with us your experiences across a few different sports there. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And both discussing performance metrics, but also injury mitigation and then the behind the scenes, what it's really like to be a sports scientist in it, working collaboratively with it, all the key stakeholders. So thoroughly appreciate it, mate. And, and like you mentioned, right. Twitter or LinkedIn is the best place for anyone to get in because I'll add those show in the show notes for anyone that's listening to the podcast recording. If you're tuned in with us, thank you for tuning into the live chat. If you you know listened in halfway through, make sure to watch the, episode, the rest of the episode. They'll be on YouTube, and we'll post it on our podcast in the next couple of weeks. But yeah, thanks again, Billy. No worries. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me ramble on. Awesome, mate. And yeah, all the best. We'll, we'll have to catch you around Abbey Park at some point and uh, grab a coffee. And yeah, thanks again for everyone that's tuned in. Our next chat is with Steve Saunders. They'll be talking about the performance and medical team, how they can work collaboratively in team sports success. So you worked at Geelong Cats last year so we'll be talking about their obviously winning the premiership so that'll be 4 o'clock next Thursday so I'll see you guys then If you enjoyed this episode and want even more our academy is for you The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level Here's an example with Emily Meehan Head Sports Dietitian from Collingwood Football Club What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes. And you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So. I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful. Plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my my question to you was: you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, 
Yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just to be to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things and um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to yeah like reset and and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about you know that there is more to life than football or you know might be whatever as an SNC coach you know if something's you having a hard time um, it can be massive with just yeah opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble um, yeah. so that's that's been huge um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.